0: Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. See website for details. Good afternoon. You're listening to Gambling with an Edge. Now here are your hosts, Bob Dancer and Richard Munchkin.
2: Good afternoon. Welcome to Gambling with an Edge. I'm Bob Dancer. And I'm Richard Munchkin. Our guest today is a poker and blackjack player and dumpster diver named Vagan Mav. Uh, Vegan Mav, welcome to Gambling with an Edge.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for hosting me.
2: All right. So you will talk about your current exploits in a bit. But as a kid, you were homeless and had to support the family. And you uh, dumpster dive food and you uh, did something with Toyotas. So tell us about what that was all about
1: to be clear uh when we were homeless i was two years old but uh after that we were still very very poor (laughs) um but when we were two uh that's when my father took us dumpster diving to get food to eat so we would survive um and then we kind of always did as a family and probably stopped when my dad had a little more money but then my parents got a divorce and back to it was just me living with my mom my sisters we had to find a way to put food on the table and we went back to dumpster diving. I, I was probably leading the charge there. Um, I think there's probably a lot of misconceptions about dumpster diving. Um, there's a, a, a lot of um, uh, people haven't gone, so they just don't know what it's like or the, the risks and stuff. Uh, as you mentioned, I also did flip Camrys. Uh, not sure which one you want to talk about first.
3: Well, let's let's talk about um, the Camrys because the dumpster diving uh... – gets much more interesting when you continue doing it as an adult when you didn't need to. Mm -hmm. So, but let's talk about the Camrys first.
1: Okay. Um, So um, when my parents got a divorce, I was the oldest male or the only male in the family and we're a Latino family. I've kind of felt a little bit of pressure to uh, take care of the bills and keep the family taken care of. So um, my um, uncle had had a used car dealership. My grandfather in houston texas supposedly had the first uh nissan dealership in texas uh back in like the 70s i guess i think it was called datsun even back then Uh, so i knew a little tiny tiny bit about cars just from being around it and um somehow i don't remember exactly how it started but i i had the realization that um uh, in the the back then, the you don't sell them on Facebook or Craigslist. You'd sell them in the classified section of of the newspaper. For those younger listeners out there, there, is a big paper printed on dead trees thing released every morning. And uh I found if you go to the factory, like the warehouse or whatever, it, around three thirty in the morning, they would release the first editions. You could get it there, and I'd get it there. I think it was twenty five cents when I started, and go right to the classifieds. And somewhere around once a month or so, there's just some in my eyes, some rich businessman who just did not care about getting top dollar for his car. And there wasn't as much information. Now you can look up online. What is my car worth on Edmunds or Blue Book? Back then, nobody knew. And so he would sell his car that in my eyes was worth 5000 for maybe $2,000. i would call him up right at 3.30 in the morning, say, hey, sir, sorry to bother you, but you know, I'll buy your car. I'll take it right now. I got the cash ready. Often you get voicemail or answering machine back then, or uh, they wouldn't answer. But when they did answer, they'd be annoyed, usually. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, I would be. <laughs> I'd say, I'll come right now. And they're like, look, no, come tomorrow. And I'd usually just say, well, just promise me you'll sell it to me. Because by morning, he'd probably have 10 or 15 phone calls of people wanting to buy his car. It's a competitive market. And usually they'd keep their word as long as they, they said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I promise that to you. Just let me go back to sleep, kid. Um, so I'd show up at seven or eight or nine before they went to work usually, or sometimes after they got home, pay them as 2000. You're you're how old? Um, so I started at 14. Um, I did this till I was about 17 or so. Um, So you
3: couldn't drive the car.
1: Uh, uh, I could drive the car, just not legally. Sure. (laughs) Um, I, uh, I had learned how to drive at my parents, uh, used car dealership that they had had, uh, that I worked at one summer and just was responsible for moving the cars, pulling around back to around front. And so. I kind of knew how to drive. My mom, my mom said, as long as I stayed safe and kept out of trouble, and you know, she knew I was making money. She was okay with me driving without a license. Um, so I'd show up, pay him his money. Um, I guess occasionally they were a little skeptical, like "Who's this little kid?" or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and uh, so the ad, uh, I'd only buy cars that were completely functional, no issues. You know, I didn't want to fix anything. I didn't know how to fix anything, so I'd make sure it was in good condition. Um, I'd watch it really clean, call up the um, newspaper, and I uh, had a little trick because the ads were about $100 back then for ad space in the newspaper. It's a lot of money that I didn't want to spend if I didn't have to. And I'd say, hey, um, I listed my car for sale yesterday, and you put $2,000, but it's actually $5,000, pretending to be the guy I'd bought it from. And they, I said, there's a typo or something. Just switch that to a five for me. And they'd say, Okay. And then I said, by the way, you put my um, work number there. Let's change that to my home number. And I'd give them my personal number. And so, that, so then they'd list it right back up. You'd get about 12 days, I think, to have the ad run. So I had 11 debt left for free. And uh, people would just call me up not knowing. The and the newspaper didn't know back then that uh, I was kind of running a little game on them. And I did that many, many times. It didn't always work, but I'd say 9 out of 10 times I got that through. And uh, save $100 in each one. I'd wash it really clean. People would come within a couple of days. I'd flip it, sell it, and then move on to the next car.
2: But wouldn't the people at the newspaper recognize your voice after a while? That they kept, whoever this guy <laughs> is, keeps making the same mistake And he Uh, has all kinds of different work numbers, but only one home number or something.
1: Maybe. uh, I only did about once a month. And um, I wouldn't do it for every single car. There was sometimes prohibitive if his price was weird and I couldn't just get one digit to change to make it what price I wanted to get for it, then I might not call on that one. I only did it once a month. They had an operating line. I don't think they, I got different people. I don't think, as far as I know, they didn't, they didn't catch on.
2: All right. So you did that for a while. And why why did you end up stopping that? That's a, that sounds like a scam you can run for a long time.
1: Well, uh, I, I, I personally wouldn't call it a scam quite. Uh, I was giving people quality <laughs> cars at a price that they were happy with. And uh, I had really good customer service. Uh, maybe the newspaper didn't like that I didn't pay the $100. And um, well, I found there was ways I could make even more money and more reliable, you know, it's up to A, it was up to um, being able to find the cars. And eventually, as the internet got more popular a little bit, it was a little more competition, and people kind of found the better... They knew what their car was worth. And I discovered scalping tickets. And that had... uh, It was more... There was more work. I could do it almost every day. And it made me more money per month.
3: And so, how were you getting a hold of the tickets to scalp? Because I... I, w- I uh I did a little bit of this uh back in the day, um, but Ticketmaster started putting in these uh restrictions on how many tickets you could buy and blocking you from automating the ticket buying process and.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was familiar with that, and some of my acquaintances or um, colleagues did that and would eventually write scripts or bots to go in there and buy them right. Quickly. I never did much of that. I think I did that once or twice and didn't really like it. There was a little more risk in that if it was sold out, but then sometimes the venue could release more tickets and then you'd be kind of screwed or it was sold out, but people just didn't want to, they heard it sold out and it's hard to sell them. Nobody wanted to try to find tickets if it was sold out. So I preferred find getting them for below face value. There's a lot of different ways to do that. Sometimes I'd run advertisements, um, like in the newspaper, um, I'd have a business card. I'd give it out to people at events. You know, if you have extra tickets, you know, hit me up. I'll buy them off you. Um, There's also those guys you see on the corner still now at events. I need tickets holding up big signs that said, I need tickets. If you're a young man and your girlfriend broke up with you and stood you up and now you've got two tickets, you got one extra, you probably don't want to go yourself. You'll just sell both tickets for $10 each. You just want to get out of there, buy them off of them. But uh, one of my best sources was um, radio DJs who were a little corrupt uh, they'd see me out there. I made a few contacts that I used for, geez, maybe 10 years. Um, so they would get gifted um, maybe 100 comp tickets um, from the band or the venue. I'm not really sure who exactly. And they'd give them out on the radio, right? You hear these, call in, be the ninth caller, and get a pair of free tickets to the concert. They, I don't know how many exactly they gave away, maybe four or six on their radio. They'd either get 50 or 100. And they'd call me up and say, yo, Vegan Mav, So I got 46 tickets to Dave Matthews Band this Saturday. And, you know, he got them for free. I'd give him 15, 20 bucks each. He'd make his whatever $1,000 and I'd turn around and sell them over face price often or at face price or if there's a small concert below face price and I could still make my profit. And that relationship lasted a, a long time. Uh, they got away with it without knowing these DJs. I had, I had two DJs to be clear who uh, would help me out and other workers at the venues would get whatever 20 tickets who worked there for whatever's a manager or something could get 20 comp tickets and they didn't need these tickets and their friends were tired of going to concerts or whatever. So they just sell them to me for five, 10 bucks each. I'd turn around and flip them.
3: How yeah, in- definitely uh advantage place. How did you get into poker?
1: Um, for poker, um, I was in college um still to this day, I did some digging in my old emails as best I could. I don't know if it was 2003 or 2004, but it was one of those. It was at my buddy Derek's house. Shout out to Derek. He, he's still one of my best friends. And uh, we went to high school together. We were on the chess team together at the high school. And uh, I don't know if you know, a lot of the chess nerds were also Magic the Gathering nerds. And a lot of the Magic the Gathering nerds became poker nerds. And he had um, become a professional poker player. I didn't know that. We were over at his house watching The Matrix, great movie, and uh, both not doing our homework for school. <laughs> and by the end of watching The Matrix, he had, um, I, I, I mean, I asked him at the end, like, what, what are you doing exactly? You know, He was on the computer while we watched The Matrix all the time. He said, I'm playing poker online for real money. I said, wow, that's a thing? He said, yeah, it's a thing. I've been doing it for almost a year now. I said, so how much did you make? Um, he said, I, I don't remember now. It's a thousand or two thousand dollars. Just while well, we watched The Matrix in a couple hours, and I was completely blown away. Um, I was making probably a few thousand a week um, scalping tickets, maybe three, four, five thousand. You know, it varied. And he made that, you know, in a couple hours watching The Matrix. I said, "I'm going to be a professional poker player, Derek." And he said, "Hey, hey, Pep, Pepe, do you do you even know how to play?" He called me Pepe back then. Um, he said, "Do you even know how to play poker?" I said, "No, I I don't." Uh, he said, "You should learn the rules first before you." decided to become a professional. (laughs) He he taught me the rules. and, uh,
2: hmm? Among other things, learning some strategy (laughs) wouldn't do you bad.
1: Yeah, rules first, then strategy. So he taught me the rules, and of course, I was horrible, but he was pretty good. Um, uh, To be clear, actually, we were what we're called, or he was back then, and then I became what were called hosts or props on um, Absolute Poker and Ultimate Bet. So hosts or props are... Uh, compensated for getting games going. We'd sit there by ourselves to try to start games called seeding games, S-E-E-D, like planting the seed. And you get two or three- That
3: used to be called a uh, shill.
1: Shill, they used to call it shill. I think they didn't like that name as much. They moved away from that and called it either <laughs> ocean or dropping. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. And uh, so they would compensate you. Basically, they'd give you 100% of your rake back. The rake is the fee taken by the card house. They give you 100% of that back, which actually- turns out to be a lot of money. Uh, a lot of people made more from their rake back a hundred percent rake back than they did from winning in the games. But, um, so he, he let me play in his account. Um, I have my notes here that I looked up. Uh, I won a dollar and 60 cents. Um, he transferred me that, um, a dollar. You were
3: playing in a, what, like a one cent, two cent game I'm or something
1: very close to that. Maybe two cent, four cent, something very, very close to that. Yeah. And so I won a dollar and 60 cents and, uh, he said, "Why don't I make you an account on uh, Poker Stars back in the day? Because that was the only site that offered the one cent, two cent games. Party Poker was the next biggest site, and they started at maybe fifty cent, dollar I think, or twenty five cents, fifty cent, which sounded just huge to me. And so I was in the one cent, um, two cent on Poker Stars. Uh, no, not quite one cent, two cent. Let me see here in my notes. Um, regardless, I had ten bets at the penny games, and I lost that in one day. Lost that in one day at home playing by myself, and I." Felt bad about that. I went back and said, I lost all the money. He said, why don't you read this book? It was uh, Advanced Hold'em Theory by David Sklansky. And I read the whole thing several times, understood maybe 10% of it, but finally got a little strategy. Um, And then he transferred me $2.50 to Poker Stars. And after that, that was four days later. After that $2.50, I played the penny games. The standard back then was 300 big bets was a required bankroll to play at any stakes. So if you're playing 5 cent, 10 cent, um what is that um,
3: thirty bucks dollars
1: yeah thirty dollars to play in that game and um, so once I had the thirty dollars for that I'd move up to that five cent ten cent and then once for us bank rolled enough for 10 cent 20 cent I move up to that and just slowly move my way up once I had the 300 big bets and within three years I was playing at the highest stakes offered online I think back then it was maybe three hundred six hundred dollar. Online, I'd studied my ass off, read every book. Uh,
3: I'm sorry, five cent, ten cent would be three dollars, right?
1: Is its it three dollars? Yeah, okay, it's just 300 bets regardless. Each and as soon as I got 300 bets, I moved right up to the next
3: 30. Day. Oh, 300, okay, I was thinking 30. Okay,
1: there are 300 big bets that was the standard back then. Eventually, it moved up as the variance was larger and the skill was better of the opponents to 500 big bets. Now, I think they say you should have maybe 2,000 big bets. I don't know, I'm a little out of touch. But is this on
3: the table or in your account?
1: Uh, not even in your account, just in your total bankroll that you have segregated to be able to play with.
3: Oh, 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 but that's just a guideline, it wasn't some no, rule of the no. site. Okay, no, no. okay,
1: it was a guideline I think put out by Sklansky, probably of like, hey, this is approximately what you should be bankrolled with to reduce your uh risk of ruin to something like one percent or something like that.
3: I see, okay, I didn't
1: know much about that, but I took Sklansky's word as as, as you know, gold or whatever, I, whatever he said. That i did so I, I just grinded my ass off for several years and i was a, a host learned um a lot of heads up and eventually became a heads-up specialist H- limit hold'em has a specialist in 2007 2008 2009 i don't know if you know but that's those are the glory days of online poker when people had a lot of money to lose and it was kind of like the wild west there's just not much regulation you could sit at the highest games and win a lot of money lose a lot of money and, make a lot per hour. I think a lot of people averaged over a thousand hour. A lot of my colleagues who were playing at the highest games over a thousand hour for those years. There's a lot of money being made back then.
3: Now there were some, uh, w- were these heads up limit or no limit?
1: Uh, I was a limit specialist. So yeah, heads up limit.
3: So there were some guys who solved limit hold back then and were playing heads up limit hold with a strategy that was game theory optimal. Did you run into them?
1: I'm, I I would slightly disagree with that. I think they hadn't solved it in 2008, 2009 quite, and um, but they were very close. They could beat uh, any fish handedly, and they could beat the vast majority of the pros, except for I think maybe five or six professionals. Uh, within a few years, yeah, I think they had solved it. But when I was at my highest stakes, um, I don't think they had solved it in 2008 or 2009 yet um and yeah i would run into them and it was hard to tell at first but they would play like a machine and not like a human and for the first hundred hands or so you're doing your best to put a read on your opponent and figure out is this guy good is he bad if he is good how good is he how is he playing if he's bad how bad is he how can i exploit him and a lot of the machine play was the bots as we called them they were playing in a way that looked like a fish because they were doing. Near game theory optimal, and they were doing plays that humans just couldn't even imagine. And so, if you're playing somebody that it looks bad on the surface, and they're just crushing you left and right, that's pretty good information that maybe you're playing one of these bots. I'm sure I quit a few players that actually weren't bots, and they were just huge fish, and I was running bad. But I didn't want to risk, you know, at playing at nosebleed stakes and potentially be playing a bot and lose, you know, tens of thousands of dollars against somebody running running one of those bots. So generally I would try to vet the players back then we had, um, poker tracker.org. And so for online, it would track how much somebody had won or lost. So I would just, I had an account. I'd look them up and see, Oh, so this guy's down 50,000 in the past two years. I think it's probably good enough information that he's not a bot.
3: Yeah. The people I know who were doing it, um, they didn't use bots. They trained girls to play. And,
1: uh, I've heard of that. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that.
3: Yeah, well they they trained they solved the limit hold'em before the guys in Canada that oh. got all the press. And um but they would train these girls to play. Now the they would the girls would get accused of being bots all the time. And, you know, I know at least one set up a camera in her room so that you could see she was actually there playing the game. Mm-hmm. But um you know they had, strat basically kind of like strategy cards, like in blackjack where you would have a. Uh, so.
1: I vaguely heard of them. I was referring to the Alberta uh, team who actually Bryce worked with. Bryce was my my mentor. He's the one who got me into really playing nosebleed heads up and then hold him. He's the one that worked with uh, Canada to test human versus machine, man versus machine, or whatever. I, I vaguely heard of these girls who were trained. I wonder if. Um, I mean, I knew most of the people in the in the high stakes limit hold'em world back then. Um, am I am I allowed to say some of the names of the girls I knew and see? Do they do they not want to be outed on here?
3: Probably not. Okay, we'll, we'll, talk, <laughs> we'll talk later. I'll see, um,
1: see if they are who I think they are. Um.
2: Yeah. So yeah. So. Are you still playing poker?
1: Um. Not not very much at all. I think in the past uh, six years, I've probably played maybe two or three hours of poker. Um, in 2016, I officially retired from gambling to focus on getting into medical school. Uh, it was a long road because while I was in college, and to be clear, uh, people ask me sometimes, you know, in life, what what is your biggest regret? And probably my biggest regret or one of my biggest regrets is um, graduating college, uh, undergrad. I was making so much money at poker and was really starting to dig deep and polish this craft, just like any craft that somebody really cares about and is really taken to the next level. Um, It was really engaging. And I really, I really put a lot of care and I was proud of my level of play. I took a lot of pride in my play and school got in the way of that. And I really listened to the people around me, which I try not to do anymore. of like just, social pressure to do college and so what i did was i graduated college barely it took me six and a half years to get a four-year degree uh graduated with a 2.9 gpa uh my last year i think i failed the majority of my classes and just passed the ones that were necessary to graduate and there was many times when i had to make the decision do i keep playing this fish um and maybe make five or ten thousand or do i go sit in the back of poetry class and be bored and you know and so wait, your regret is finishing college? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely finishing college. I should have
3: because you could have uh, made a lot, more money. I could have made a lot more
1: money. I could have done something that I was passionate about. I I was also having a lot of uh great life experiences. I was traveling, networking with other professional gamblers. So in my heart wasn't really in school. On top of that, um once you graduate from undergrad it kind of limits you from what scholarships you're eligible for. Um once you graduate the first time, so if I had just withdrawn and finished just focused on poker and then later went back, I could have had those scholarships, gone back when I cared about it and actually learned paid attention and so what happened was it really uh made my gPA suffer so when I'm applying to medical school, I mean I got left out of some some <laughs> meetings with the admissions at medical schools just like so you want us to let you in you you did horribly on the MCAT and you had a two point nine gPA you know just get out of here man um so it took me about five years of focused dedication to rectify that. And eventually. And how did you do that? Uh, so I actually think I used a lot of what um, I learned in poker about um, strategizing, optimizing, you know, everything's about optimizing and uh, networking. I just, for one, I just emailed admissions at, I don't know, 50 schools across America and said, hey, uh, I have a pretty poor resume, but I'm serious about getting in and I'll do whatever it takes. Can I meet with you? And half of them would reply and say, sure. And I'd drive down there, I uh, drove across America to meet with these admissions. And half would say, or maybe 25% would say no. Another 25% wouldn't respond. And regardless, what I did was just showed up. I just went anyway, knocked on their door and said, hey, I'm driving here. I'm in Florida. I drove from the Midwest and I'm just trying to meet with you and see what I can do to get into your medical school. And you don't need all of them to say yes or to give you guidance, but one is enough. And I got a few admissions people to be impressed with my story and how dedicated I was. Um, They said, "Hey, here's your path. You do this, this, and this, and you've got a good shot at getting in." And so I was like, "Okay, I'll do this and this, this." So maybe I'll apply next year. And they said, "You know, that might—it's a little optimistic. Maybe give it three or four years." And I said, "Okay, I'll come back in three or four years once I've done these things you outlined for me." I came back to those schools. I mean, I stayed in touch. You met them every six months. Came back four years later and said, "Hey, here I am. I did the things you told me." Here's everything and several of the schools were impressed and said okay like regardless of your poor gpa you've shown me you have what it takes and i got accepted to several medical schools but now you've dropped out right (laughs) uh dropped out is not the correct term my school was taking
3: a hiatus (laughs) um
1: the technical term is on a leave of absence um you know i uh when i was playing poker online i was i was a majority of online player i played a little in real life in l.a um, with the, the highest stakes games for limit were in LA back in the day, I think they still are now. Um, so I had my laptop, I could go anywhere in the world. So I thought, why not just go to some place with a lower cost of living with a nice little beach, uh, beautiful women, you know, warm weather, uh, sounds great. So I, in, as soon as I graduated, I, um, went to Japan, spent several years in Japan. I spent three years in Japan. I spent four years in China. I was living on a, so I just did a Google search, like warm city, China, Basically, and I found uh, uh,
3: yeah you didn't find that in Japan with a nice beach, did you? Not
1: not quite. They do have uh, Okinawa or something, but that's not where I was. I was in Kyoto and Tokyo, the two biggest cities. Um, I just figured I might as well get out there, and I enjoyed it. And I actually majored in Japanese, so I figured it'd be fun to travel and do that. And after being there and realizing how expensive Tokyo is, uh, I said, you know what? Let me go to China and be someplace warmer. So I found a, China actually has a tropical island. They call it the Hawaii of the East. It's called Hainan. So I spent four years in Hainan living a few miles from the beach, you know, drinking coconuts, getting massages on the beach, you know, playing high stakes poker in my room. (laughs) And it was great then because it's 12 hour time difference. I could play the night games over here through midnight to 8am, which is when all the, you know, drunk or high or losers were online. And I could play that during the daytime and have my nights to myself. I did that for four years, learned Chinese, learned Japanese, uh, lived in Thailand. A lot of the high stakes pros, you know, bought houses or rented houses in Thailand and would have just um just these uh, little centers where people would learn and study together and play online in Bangkok and Chiang Mai. It was a wild time to be over there playing online and learning with, you know, some of the best in the world.
3: Wow, yeah, that sounds like Yeah, that sounds like a tremendous situation to be uh you know, when you put people uh who all have a common interest together in a room, it just leads to good things. That's why we used to insist in the old days that our blackjack team, that periodically we would have a team meeting where everybody on the team would get together and spend time together. Absolutely. uh, Because great ideas come out of that. Absolutely. It 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 was
1: very synergistic a lot of the time. Anytime I spent in real life with other players, we would talk online a lot to strategize, but in real life, there was something extra to it and I could see other players leaks and what they were doing wrong and they could see it in me and everybody benefited from that. Absolutely. Unfortunately, you know, there was a lot of shady characters over in Thailand doing, doing other businesses that I wasn't super, super interested in. And I ended up moving out of the the house, but I had a lot of good experience while I was there. I ended up getting my own apartment, but you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shady stuff going on on the internet back in 2006.
3: Yes, yeah, still is. But so, so when you you retired from gambling in 2016, which is very easy, I've done it five or six times. uh w- so what what prompted you to retire from gambling at
1: that? That's, point? that's a really good question. And yeah, I've done it several times myself. Also, <laughs> I think I, I enjoy gambling. You know, not just the money, but it's a part of who I am at this point. It's a part of my identity. Um, for the longest time, I. I think I spent more hours, um, actually at the tables than a lot of my colleagues. Um, cause I realized what an amazing opportunity this was. Um, and that it wasn't going to last forever. The ability I could go online and play an hour, go play in real life. And I could probably average, I don't know, one or $200 an hour. I'm not sure. But for many years, we're averaging over 500 an hour, you know, any time of the day, uh, for the peak years, over a thousand dollars an hour—it's just just ridiculous. And I realized this just can't go on. It just can't go on like this. So I made a promise to myself: I'm going to work my ass off now. I'm going to make make hay while the sun is shining, and then later, like I, I'm using this as a tool. You know, wh- what's the what's the point of gambling or or money, right? For me, it's first and foremost to have food on the table, take care of myself and my family. After that, it's to free up the time, the years of my life and the minutes of my day to spend that doing things that I enjoy to spend that playing basketball or soccer with my friends or traveling with friends or reading books that are interesting or traveling around the world. You know, I've gotten, been fortunate enough to travel to over 30 countries and I speak five languages. I've been able to buy my life back through poker to not have to go to an office job and to play if I want to now or not. So I promised myself, I said, Vegan Mav, once you're making two hundred dollars an hour, um, we're done. We're done with this. We're retiring. Once you are only making two hundred an hour, you know, once the curve comes back down, because I started at five dollars an hour, or you know, a few cents an hour, five dollars an hour, ten dollars an hour, peaked at somewhere around twelve hundred an hour, and then it just slowly started coming down. I could see the future coming. I just made that decision. Two hundred an hour, we're done. Then somewhere around two thousand sixteen, we're tracking our hourly. You know, all the. the top pros who are serious, you know, they, you track your hourly, you track all your data. And I had hit something like 240 an hour. And I said, close enough, close enough. I'm tired. I'm tired, you know, and I'm not getting any younger. I've always had to dream to be a physician. So I said, talk with, talk with my family. I said, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to go try to get into medical school. And that was the second time I retired. <laughs> I guess I had done it once before that when I was making several hundred hours, because I was t- a little tired of the game. And I think I've, now I'm back in it again. Um, you know, I'm playing mostly blackjack now, but um, considering getting back into poker, we'll see.
2: I'm interested in hearing about your blackjack adventures, but before we hear those, we need to take a brief commercial break.
0: plus
2: The South Point has more than 10,000 games returning at least 99%. This is more such games than anyone else has. To celebrate the upcoming South Point 400 NASCAR event, the October promotion is logo merchandise which you get by earning 1800 points weekly on any machine, limit 1 per player per week. You must pick up your own gift. Um You earn and redeem gifts between Monday and Thursday, midnight. Uh, The gift for October 17th to 20th is a folding chair. The one October 24th to 27th is a quarter zipper pullover. If you earn and pick up all four gifts, you'll receive $100 in free play, which will be on your card midnight to midnight, Sunday, October 30th, and Monday, October 31st.
3: If you're serious about card counting, the Blackjack Apprenticeship membership is a great way to learn, train, network, and get the resources you need to succeed. We've had quite a few guests on Gambling with an Edge who exclusively trained and got their start through Blackjack Apprenticeship. Check out their website at blackjackapprenticeship.com. They have member forums, training software, and guides to help you learn. That's blackjackapprenticeship.com, and you will find a link in the show notes.
2: VideoPoker.com is the best place to play lots of games. If you sign up for the Gold Membership, eight ninety five a month or seventy nine ninety five a year, this allows you to get correction on most of the games. The game of the week is Stack the Deck. This is a seven coins per line game where on the dealt hands of trips, quads, full houses, and four of the royal. You receive from three to five extra cards of the exact one you need to make your hand. That is, dealt 33366, and instead of having one extra three to make quads, if you draw to it, you now have six threes out of the 52 cards, giving you plenty of chances for quads, quints, five of a kind, and quads with a kicker. They have an extra pay schedule category of a baby royal and five of a kind. Since the game is fixed at a seven coin game, sometimes they have to change the pay schedule to make the game within acceptable bounds. That is a nine six four double-double bonus game because 1075, 5 which requires a considerable number of strategic changes to play appropriately. In addition, uh, with the extra cards to make the four of a kind, it must be right to, be, to break dealt full houses and go for the quads.
3: If you're interested in getting an edge at sports betting, then unabated.com is a great resource for you. Founded by frequent gambling with an edge guests, Captain Jack and Rufus Peabody, unabated.com is designed for both new and experienced sports bettors. Their real-time odd screen tools and calculators take a lot of the guesswork out of trying to quantify your edge. There is also plenty of free education and instruction to help you along your journey to become a sharper sports bettor. You can currently take advantage of a seven-day free trial to decide if the premium membership at unabated.com is right for you.
2: Right, we are back talking to Vegan Map. So, so, you decided to take up blackjack uh, either before or after you took your leave of absence from medical school. So, how did you get started in blackjack?
1: uh so and and why <laughs> it's just after my uh leave of absence from medical school um, um it seems like a fun challenge i i've I played a little bit before as an advantage player and back in 2006 just i don't know maybe 20 hours and um i wanted to see if i still had it in me to master a new game and to play at high stakes and um i really enjoy being a part of the ap community and i've enjoy the money too. It's, it's fun. Um, and so I have somewhere around, um, a couple months after taking leave, um, maybe something like, um, October, um, of this 2021, I, um, got a couple books, you know, started practicing again, bought a set, you know, dealing to myself, um, did pretty well, you know, just learned pretty well and decided I wanted to take to the next level. And, you know, Google try to figure out what is the, there's got to be a, a standout uh, training academy or whatever now, and I found a uh, blackjack apprenticeship. I have. I'm not sponsored by them or anything. Um, the only affiliation I you have are. is I'm a I'm a member. <laughs> yeah, you are. I'm not. I, I'm just a member of the 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 website there in the forum. And so I I did a boot camp, paid the three thousand dollars for that, flew out to Vegas. Um, believe it or not, that was actually my first time ever in Vegas as a professional gambler for most of my life. Um, I'd gone to LA for some high stakes games. i have never been to Vegas and I uh, did the boot camp, learned a lot, networked a lot and, um, started playing seriously, probably right after that, somewhere around February of this year, 2022, um, playing at my local casino. I've gotten just over a hundred hours there and been playing in the Midwest. I think I've been backed off of maybe six or seven casinos now, um, up just about 14,000 after just over a hundred hours. Um, I'm enjoying it a lot and learning learning a lot and learning how to optimize that getting ready and practicing. My plan is to in the very near future, within the next sixty days, start a little tour around America. I've done some short trips here and there. I went to um DC, um in the Philly area, the Midwest, you know, done a, maybe week week long trips here and there. I plan to do a little tour maybe out west, all the way from the Midwest to California. Um, um actually living out of my car.
3: Well, okay, so I want to I want us to come full circle here and go back to the dumpster diving, because um, so you made seven figures uh, playing poker and and didn't blow it. I mean, uh, but you kind of blew up on two plus two for the fact that you still eat out of dumpsters and you and you sleep in your car when obviously you don't have to. So uh, can you can you. Talk about that, why that is.
1: Sure. Yeah, uh, uh, and that's all true. I've made seven figures at poker. Um, I didn't blow it. I was, uh, you know, I, I've was, i always been frugal my whole life, and I, I have almost zero interest in flashy cars or flashy watches. I've been frugal my whole life. and am just not interested in showing off money or, I don't know, spending money just for conspicuous consumption. I use my money to free up my time to enjoy my life. And I've always lived by the the idea that you know you can make money by not spending money. Every time you don't spend twenty dollars, it's the equivalent of not spending twenty dollars. So I have.
3: Well, also twenty dollars that you save is worth more than twenty dollars that you earn. Because when you earn twenty dollars, you have to pay some percentage of that uh, in taxes.
1: I've never. But by not spending yeah. twenty
3: that you already have, it's worth more than. I've a,
1: never realized that, but that's a hundred percent true. So um, I was lucky enough, you know, to be at my peak. I probably was in my peak hourly two thousand eight or so, and had saved up some money. And I don't know if you all remember, there was kind of a recession around that time, a housing crisis. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I. Um, I was uh at a university in the Midwest where I had graduated uh remember uh, just over six years. <laughs> and uh when I was graduate just after graduating, I was sitting on this pile of cash and the housing market collapsed. And near the university, you could buy, you know, rental properties for students for literally 20 cents on the dollar. Um so I figured, you know, I didn't know much about it and I did the same thing I did with poker. I got every book from the library that I could, studied it and said, Seems like a hard way to go wrong. You know, can't go wrong buying these at 20 cents a dollar. It's got to come back eventually. So I bought about 10 or so properties around the university in the Midwest I was living at and several around a university in Texas that I was familiar with the area and rented those out. Um, I also saw it as a way to not spend my money. If you had invested in a house, it's pretty hard to liquidate that and waste it. And it's also earning you income and going up in value in the meantime, right? Getting back to its true value. So I I did have that. And, um, through my, to be clear, my entire life, I guess, um, I've been dumpster diving. We started when I was a baby, my father was doing it and I'm now about 40 years old and I still do it now. Um, there's a a lot of reasons I do it. Um, now at one point, it was out of necessity. Absolutely. And it has not been out of necessity for a long time, a couple of decades now, but, um, you know, there are, we were homeless and there are hungry people around the world and in this country and in this city I'm in right now. And there is also, you know, enough food wasted every day to feed all those hungry people in this country. Uh, Is this going to solve that problem? No, but I think it's a, a symbolic stance on the amount of waste in our society of perfectly good food that we are throwing away that could be better served feeding the hungry or, at least not being wasted. Um, on top of that, there is, so my mom is uh, Mexican and Native American and she had always told me it's a, a sin to uh, kill an animal needlessly. Um, I am uh, mostly vegan, there's some uh, exceptions to that, but for intents and purposes, I'm, most, I'm vegan. Um, and w- when we were dumpster diving, she would see one time we just saw a hundred chickens still frozen that had been thrown away. And, you know, it really touched her. She cried saying, you know, this is a sin, Vegan Mav, to raise these chickens, slaughter these chickens, and then throw them away. That's an unnecessary waste. And so, for one, it it's serves those chickens and to honor their life, for example, that we find somebody to eat them. Uh, now, I usually don't eat those, but I will rescue them and take them to hungry people. And the food that is vegan, I'll eat it myself. Um, If you think about it, if you are going to your local grocery store and you buy a loaf of bread, you want to be able to take that loaf of bread home, you know, throw it on your kitchen counter, have it sit there for a week and still be able to make a sandwich without it it being covered in mold. So these grocery stores will throw out that loaf of bread two or three weeks before it has any chance of expiring or going bad because they know their customers need to be able to have time to eat it safely without worrying about it. So... The majority of the food I get is from grocery stores, still fully packaged, still not expired, but going to expire within a week or two. And they just can't risk selling that to their customers and upsetting them. Um, there's some, so there's an interesting parallel with dumpster diving and um, the AP community. Um, I have initiated several people into dumpster diving and all of them, you make them go through the same three rules. Any veteran dumpster diver will know these rules. The first, first and foremost, we say don't blow up the spot. What that means is don't go posting on internet forums or shouting to everybody, hey, here's the best dumpster I ever found. This one grocery store, you know, you can go anytime and get this and this and that. Some people survive off of that dumpster and it's their livelihood. Some people, not myself necessarily, but need that. And so you don't blow up the spot. Don't blab about it to anybody. It's on a need to know basis. Number two, leave it cleaner than you found it. What will end uh, the viability of a dumpster, which will get it locked up uh, or a trash compactor put in, is you making a mess. You know, you throwing all the trash everywhere and leaving it out. So leave it cleaner than you found it. I don't care if you didn't make a mess, pick up a piece of trash and throw it back in the dumpster, sweep up a little bit, whatever. It's a symbolic commitment to these rules that you were saying, I'm gonna do my best to, to keep this sustainable. Number three, the last rule is don't take more than you need. And that's been modified to don't take more than you can need or give away to your community. So you can take a lot as long as you're going to make sure every bit of that is going to be given away to your neighbors, your friends, to the homeless, to the hungry. Those are the three rules of uh, dumpster diving that I make any newbie swear to who I take out. And I I won't take just anybody. You got to prove that, you know, you're going to really value this. So what about
3: fruits and vegetables? Like, how do you know they're clean?
1: It's a good question. So For one, you know, as a veteran, I know which dumpsters are reliable and a lot of the grocery stores where we go, we have kind of like an unspoken agreement or sometimes a spoken agreement. Hey, like if we don't make a mess and we don't, you know, you know, be back there doing drugs or, you know, literally peeing or shitting around the dumpster, then they'll leave us alone and let us be. Um, And so uh, it's true that occasionally um, some grocery stores or Other places I can't, I can't mention will intentionally put bleach on their food or something to, to stop us from being able to get that. Um, So as a veteran, you kind of know which spots are, uh, are, are okay to go to Um, for fruits and vegetables. I mean, for one, so a lot of us of me and my, my friends who are serious dumpster divers. So I I still go today. I don't, I used to go about every other day. Now I only go a couple of times a month, Um, but we have through the years developed a way ways to you know decipher this for one we think that we get sick less often than the average person that buys their food at the grocery store for one we're checking all our food before we eat it if you go to the grocery store you're not checking every time to see oh you know is this moldy is this bad is there something seem wrong with this does it smell off does it taste off so for something like milk for example you first you check the expiration date then you check is it still cold? If it's not cold when I get it, I'm not taking it. I'm not taking it. They have to have thrown it out and it's still cold. Then you open it up, you smell it. Uh, does it smell okay? Then you just taste a little bit. If you've done all those things, chances are you're okay. You take it home, you drink it. Um, I think I've gotten sick two or three times in my entire life from dumpster diving, which I don't think is any more than the person who you know, buys their food at the grocery store. For fruits and vegetables... You can often, you want to find a reason why did they throw this out? Um, If you can see, as most stores, there's a bag of apples, 10 apples. One is rotten. They're throwing out the whole bag. I take out that one, rotten one, leave it in the dumpster. I take the other nine, wash them at home, eat them. Same thing with vegetables. If you can find a reason, take it home and eat it. Sometimes it's as simple as the label fell off. That's a very common one. They're not going to sell it if the label fell off. Sometimes... If it's a box of cereal, they accidentally, with their box cutters, when they're opening the container it came in, they accidentally cut through the outer box, even though the inner bag is still intact. They're not going to sell that box on their shelves. Um, For breads, they're always just going through bread. uh, Most stores just throw them out way early. Um, Fresh bread or whether it's packaged bread. Uh, Meats and fish, a a lot of dumpster divers won't touch it. Um, Most of my friends will. Um, And you look at the same thing. Is it cold? Uh, was it thrown out today? What's the expiration date on it? Is it still frozen? If it's still frozen, it's in the dumpster. You know, open up, a, smell it, taste it. It seems okay. You know, c- c- cook it, cook it up, and eat it. This, um, just use your common sense. And over the years, you kind of get a sense for what your tolerance is and what are the likelihood that whatever item you're looking at is has gone bad.
2: I going back to blackjack. Have you ever found that when you're good at Chinese and Japanese and other languages, that's a useful skill playing blackjack? And if so, how?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as I lived in those countries, I I grew up speaking Spanish and it's, it's easier to pick up a third or fourth or fifth language once you already picked up a second. Um, I also minored in linguistics at, at my university. And so, uh, I have a little bit of language ability. Um, so at the blackjack table, I, first, first I want to fit in and not get backed off. So with the ploppies, I will try to be one of the ploppies, be one of the friends, talk to them. So um, my best language is Chinese, um, foreign language, then Japanese, then Thai, then Khmer, which is the language of uh, Cambodia. Um, and so... I will just try to become friends with them first of all, um, for a lot of different reasons. I try to sit in the middle, so on my left and my right are both poppies if there's uh, multiple players. Um, and for one, they, if you're friends with them, they will let you if they don't have enough to take their doubles, Ace seven versus six, they'll let you have some of that action. They'll let you take some of that double. I've won a lot of money uh, off of having letting, them letting me have some of their double because we're now friends. Um, when the count gets really high, um, you know, I, as you may know, a lot of the Asian cultures are relatively superstitious. I don't want to lump them all into one, but a lot of the different Asian cultures are superstitious. So I'll, I'll tell them in whichever language is appropriate. You know, I feel some luck coming my way right now. Um, I'm going to put my big bets out. I can feel it and I'm going to capitalize on it. Do you mind sitting out while I get this lucky rush rush of cards here most of them will be happy to oblige and root me on and they'll sit out while the true count is a plus four plus five and i'll just you know put my big bets out for a while till it hits comes back down to a true zero and i'll say okay i think the rush is over i'm gonna come i'm gonna i'm gonna bet small now and why don't you all come back in now we'll we'll play together and try to take them on together now and i've done a decent amount of hands that way capitalizing on the opportunity of that these are my my buddies now we're all in this together and they'll root me on as I, as I play on my own or come back in when I ask them to.
2: Now you can speak Chinese. You don't look Chinese. (laughs) Um, So uh, um, Americans and Mexicans could recognize you as a compadre, but these Asians wouldn't. Is that a problem? Like they're kind of suspicious of this white guy speaking uh, their language?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I'm relatively friendly and gregarious uh, in real life and uh, in person with these people. And I think they pick on that pretty quickly. And through my entire life living abroad, I've had to encounter that over and over when you meet somebody new. Why is this white guy so fluent in my mother tongue? And so, you know, I've learned, you you just tell them, you, you tell them you have respect for their culture, you lived in their country. And speaking in their native tongue with a good accent and sometimes just like we have regional dialects here you know new york is different from louisiana they have those in their country and i've worked really hard to specialize in those also so i'll ask what part of the country they're from or pick up on it and show them that i'm well versed you know that i really did spend time in their country and that i even know the accent in their region of their country and uh share with them my
3: My experience was that when you try to speak their language they're elated that you would try to learn their language and I literally had a cab driver in Korea say you know why are you you know you're american why would you want to learn how to speak korean
1: yeah and i, I said i it.
3: said you know this is your country not mine i you know it's it's um, they're very
1: touched usually it's, it's it's a way to show yeah. respect and care for them and their culture that you took the time to learn their language, even if it's a few words. I found when I was worse at the language, they were more impressed when I was just beginning. Like, wow, this guy's really putting in the effort to try at least uh, to learn a few words in the language. It goes a long way, just learning a a few words here and there. I think, uh, it's hard for me to say, but I think it's really kept me from being backed off at a lot of the casinos where I'm playing blackjack, at least letting the pit boss or whoever second guess themselves, like, what's going on with this guy?
3: Well, I would think if the pit boss himself or herself speaks Chinese or Japanese or Thai, you know, that would be a tremendous yeah asset.
1: I'm struggling with that. I've I've read a lot of books and I've, I'm doing my best to become friends with the pit bosses and, and the, the floor managers and interact with them. My natural inclination is to want to shy away from them, but I, I understand that's not the best way to do it. So I just try to go interact with them. Well, it's,
3: it's a double-edged sword because the the problem is it may be longer before you get backed off, but once you do get backed off, they're never going to forget you. Uh, if they're Chinese and you speak Chinese, they are never going to forget you once you've been backed off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm pretty sure some of them have caught on to me and just liked me enough that they were going to let me play longer anyway, just because they enjoyed talking to me. and. I, I, I've read that for a while. Eventually, though, you know, uh,
3: eventually, you know, they, they're going to have to. But I think it uh, might buy you a little time.
1: They're going to, you know, give you the benefit of the doubt for a little while longer.
3: Yeah.
2: Now, going full circle again, as a gambling man, what would you place the odds on you being in the medical profession or at least Somewhere in the medical profession in five years.
1: Well, <laughs> that's a really good question.
2: Being a student or resident, or whatever okay, okay, good. Happens.
1: I was I was about to say that because the path the path is a long one. I'm not going to be finished with it in five years. Um, I'm pretty uh, dedicated to giving it my best shot. Um, to be clear, I've looked at the data. Um, the school that I go to is it has the lowest. Um, pass rate in the nation for medical schools. I didn't really know that wow. when I went in. Um, so a lot of schools are a little lenient. They'll like help you, you know, help you pass. If you're on borderline on passing for most medical schools, you need a 70% to pass exams or to pass school. And if you have a 69 or 68, most medical schools are like, yeah, you know, close enough. My school doesn't do that on top of several other factors. Um, so that might be one burden, but I think if I don't pass at my school, I've decided I'm going to, reapply at another school, which is almost unheard of in the medical field, but I'll go back again. i give it, um, i say something like a 55% chance that within five years, I'm in, in the medical field.
2: 55%, yeah. nobody says 55. It's like 50-50 or something is a common answer, but 54.2, that's-
1: uh, um, 55%. <laughs> I'd like to think that I am a, I'm better than 50-50 odds. And I, I have, you know, I've invested a lot into this, I'm pretty committed. I I, I know I have what it takes. It's just um, there's a lot of factors outside of my control, and on top of that, it's hard to like go from, you know, living on the beach in you know Thailand and getting massages and drinking coconuts and making a thousand an hour at poker to sitting in the library twelve hours a day, uh, with twenty two year old you know genius classmates who have never seen anything outside of the library. It's it's quite a different world
3: we're almost out of time, but I just want to ask, uh, do you have a family? And has that been a big problem? Like for most of us, uh, when we were dating, trying to find women who understand somebody who's a professional gambler was not easy.
1: Uh, so I'm not married. I don't have kids. Um, I've dated lots of women and, um, the majority of them have understood I've, taken the time out to explain pretty clearly what I'm doing and and how it's not just uh, (laughs) being a compulsive gambler or a problem gambler. Uh, It has caused problems. I've lost some relationships, especially uh, in China, where the parents didn't like the fact that their daughter was dating somebody who claims to be a professional gambler. Um, For the most part, though, the women I've dated have been very open minded and uh, I'm a little bit of a unique person myself so I'm attracted to interesting unique people and so a lot of them can either understand or um you know at least believe me when they see oh th- you know this guy uh his story matches up with his lifestyle and it seems like he's not uh eating out of the trash because he has to but because <laughs> they see maybe my rent- rental properties or 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 whatever but um for the most part it's been not much of an issue there is um there's one thing I'd like to say for, for, for poker, when we were playing uh, heads up, a lot of the time, if you ever, you're playing heads up session, maybe eight hours long. If, if you go to the bathroom, um, they will, uh, often leave, they'll quit. Those will go play somebody else. The fish you have in the line doesn't want to wait two minutes for you to go to the bathroom and come back. So we can't afford to, to say, Hey buddy, hold on a second while I go to the bathroom. So I would have my partners, my girlfriends, uh, Sit down there and I'll tell them call Ray's fold. they'll tell me you have you know King jack suit I'll say raise call while I'm in the bathroom and if, <laughs> if they weren't if if they weren't if they weren't there, I would use the extra wide mouth Gatorade bottles um by my guest. <laughs> and I think it's now been six times better in my for life
2: for one than it does for number two Works
1: <laughs> <We're laughs> better for number one that's true. I think it's been six times in my life where I accidentally bought the orange flavor wide mouth Gatorade or yellow flavor and um filled it up kept it by my desk and did not realize while I was playing and went for a drink (laughs) and uh, had my own urine in my mouth. I think it's been six times. And one time I had a full house at 200, 400 uh, heads up. There was, I don't know, four or 5,000 in the pot. I just had to play out the hand for maybe 30 seconds with a mouthful of urine. until I could run to the bathroom to spit it out.
2: (laughs) Huh? Could have spit it out. Into the bottle.
1: Uh, That that makes sense now. I have no idea looking back why I didn't do that. That makes a lot of sense. I do know, though, that several of my colleagues who played uh, High Limit Hold'em have had very similar stories of peeing into bottles and accidentally drinking their own urine a couple of times.
2: I don't have such a story, but I would think drinking, having my own urine in my mouth would be less offensive than having somebody else's urine in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) But, <laughs> different different,
1: different, uh, different, strokes for different folks, I guess.
2: I guess. All right. So with those different strokes, uh, we're going to thank you. And we're now going to go to the recommended section of the show where the host and sometimes the guest recommend something they think will be of interest to the audience. So, Richard, do you have a recommended for our audience today?
3: I do not have a recommended this week. All
2: right, um, then we're going to go to me, and I want to talk about Walter Longo, longevity diet. Now, a few months ago, I recommended the longevity work of David Sinclair, who's a professor at Harvard. Walter Longo is a professor at the University of Southern California and writes on similar topics. USC isn't near the prestige of Harvard, but they do have a better football team. Um, today, I recommend his book, The Longevity Diet. There's a considerable overlap between what Sinclair writes. The breakthrough in Longo's version is what he calls the fasting mimicking diet, FMD. Fasting is very healthy for longevity and impossible for many people. So the FMD is a low-calorie substitute you do to trick your body into thinking you're fasting while not actually fasting. It gives you the benefits of fasting without the pain. It works. Uh, next week, I'll tell you about another author on this general subject. Bottom line, I'm a true believer, which makes me boring to many other people. But now I'm much healthier, more alert, and lost quite a bit of weight since I've been doing this. So, Vegan Mav, do you have something to recommend to our guest?
1: Absolutely. And talking about the fasting and diet, I'm a little familiar with that, and with fasting for longevity. And, uh, I personally do fasts, uh, usually water only five days. Uh, it's quite hard, but the benefits are immense. I've had some of my best poker at the end of those five days with extreme mental clarity and focus. Um, so I I actually have two, one to fill in here for Richard. Um, TommyAngelo.com uh, is his website. It's Tommy Angelo. He's a poker author, poker coach, mostly for mindset and mindfulness. Uh, he specializes in what we call non-betting decisions. Betting decisions are strategy at the table. Non-betting decisions are, you know, what am I gonna have for dinner tonight? Uh, how am I gonna set up my my poker space, my poker mind? What can I do to increase my EV by increasing my my mindset? He's a expert in that and he's helped me a lot. So his website is tommyangelo.com, t-o-m-m-y, a-n-g-e-l-o.com. Uh I get nothing from this. I'm not an affiliate or anything. It's just he's really helped me a lot. And the second one is I recently started using it, and I love it. It's an uh, internet-wide for your home internet ad blocker. So it blocks all in, uh, advertisements as they come into your modem. It's called uh, Raspberry Pi Hole, P-I-H-O-L-E. You can Google it, find out more about it. Um, they have discount ones available on eBay for about 50 bucks. I have no affiliation with them either, but uh, I love browsing my internet and actually having close to zero advertisements it's an amazing experience by the way i use the
3: brave browser which does block a lot of that Mm -hmm. so and it blocks the tracking from uh you know facebook and twitter and all of that
1: brave is great the benefit of this one is anybody comes over to your house they connect to your wi-fi whatever browser they use or anything they get the benefit of you having installed that and not having any ads on their experience either
3: Ah, that's interesting before we let
2: you go, if some of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that?
1: Uh yeah, that'd be great. I'm actually interested in networking with other people and talking to people who appreciate my experience or you know can relate to it. I think this whole world of gambling and you know you know making money through non standard forms is really interesting and there's a lot of interesting people out there, so I'd love to share my email with people. It's actually uh, dumpsterpoker at gmail.com. Dumpster is D-U-M-P-S-T-E-R, poker, P-O-K-E-R, just dumpsterpoker at gmail.com. I'd be happy to hear from anybody.
3: Very good. Very good. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having and,
2: uh, me. Thank you, Richard. And go on and hit lots of royal flushes, everybody. Good day.